you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Uh, Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. On the Tuesday mornings, we've been walking through a series through Ephesians, and uh, excited to uh, continue that with you this morning. We're actually in a kind of a transition section, if you will. And uh, what I'd like to do <coughs> is just kind of give a quick review and kind of give a recap of where we're at and kind of where we're heading, and then actually get into this, uh, the concept. Uh, now today, specifically, what I want to do is I want to give you an overview. Uh, again, we're kind of in this transition of two sections, and it's the only way you can understand where we're heading is you have to understand the previous section, but I also want you to give me insight of where we're heading in the future section. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, what I'd like to do <coughs> is read the prayer that, Paul's been, uh, that Paul prayed uh, that we've been walking through, which is verse 15 down to verse 19. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Paul writes this, <coughs> Therefore I also, after hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers. So that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints? And what what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? It's an incredible prayer. Now, if you notice in, uh, I don't know about your translation, my translation, the end of verse 19, has a comma, uh, which means he's jumping, in, jumping into verse 20, and he's just continuing in the same breath the passage. However, here's the slightly awkward thing, at least in my perspective. And again, depending on what scholar you look at, they may disagree with me. But the more time I've spent in the passage, the more I've come to the conclusion that between verses 19 and 20, there is a, there's a transition, there's a switch. And so let me give you the whole context and the flow. In verse 15, Paul's saying, oh, I've heard of something in your life. I've heard of your overwhelming faith in the Lord and your love toward the saints. In other words, they are Christians. (laughs) And they're not just using the language of Christianity. They're actually living out the lifestyle of Christianity. They're living by faith, and they're known for their love. And he says in verse 16, because of that, I just cannot stop giving thanks for you. Verse 17, he actually gets into the very heart of the prayer, And he says that he's praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And the idea there is the fact that uh, revelation is this idea. It's a pulling back. It's it's an unveiling. It's a, uh, there's a curtain and you're you're pulling back the curtain and it's, there's something being unveiled. And what's being unveiled? Oh, the wisdom stuff, which is this whole idea of the deep things of God or the perspective of God. And so Paul is praying that there would just be this revelation that the curtains would be pulled back and you would gain and understand the deep things of God. Don't you need that? I mean, I need that. That's, I just think that's awesome. And then he says, <clears throat> verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding or the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that here's your heart. It was dark and callous and death and sin. And what has God done? He's really shined his light in your, in your heart, in your life, and he's really transitioned you in, into the dear kingdom of his son, as Colossians says. And now you have the ability to understand a few things. Now, now that your heart is no longer dead and dark, you can now comprehend and understand and ascertain that which Paul's praying. 
and there are three key things. And over the last few weeks, we've been walking through those. Number one, verse 18, that you would understand the hope of his calling. Not a, oh, I hope that I have a calling. It's I have a calling which produces the hope of my life. That you have a calling in your life. That every single Christian has a calling. And the primary calling on your life, got to get this, this is good. The primary calling on your life is not a profession. It's not a, well, I'm called to be a teacher. I'm called to be a circus clown. I'm called to be a plumber, whatever it may be for you, right? It's not that kind of a calling. The calling here in this passage is is not a professional calling, though God calls that way. The calling here is a calling to a person. His name is Jesus. And the primary calling on your life is, hey, would you just get all wrapped up in, in Jesus? Hey, would you just find yourself in him and... And again, as, I mean, go back to the previous studies, but we're looking at two aspects of the calling. One is the fact that it's this idea of given a name, that you've been given a name in this calling. And there's this idea of a, an invitation to a banquet. And so there's, it's, the whole thing is relational. And so, hey, you have a calling on your life. Well, what's the calling on my life? Oh, do, do I get to be a teacher? Do I get to be a missionary? No, 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 that's not the kind of calling we're talking about. The kind of calling that Paul wants you to know and just be able to understand and see is you are called to a person, his name is Jesus. And would you get tight in the relational reality of who he is in your life? That's, that's the primary calling that Paul's talking about. He says, not only do I want you to understand your calling, at the end of verse 18, he says, I want you to understand and know the riches of the glory of his inheritance. That, hey, there is this inheritance. And as we were walking through it, we were talking about the fact that there's actually two ideas of the inheritance. One, we have received an inheritance, which is him, which is found again in verse 13 and 14. But then he has an inheritance, which is us. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea that God is looking forward to his inheritance. And what is his inheritance? Well, he says clearly, my inheritance are my people. So we have an inheritance, which is him. He has an inheritance, which is us. And again, it bespeaks of this relational thing. So what is Paul praying? Not only that you would understand your calling, which is relational, but that you would get all wrapped up in your inheritance, which is relational. And again, we're not talking just money and finances and a brand new car, right? We're, we're talking something even better than that, which is, hey, would you just somehow get lost in the richness of who he is? And will you just pursue him? And would you grow in him? And would you let his life expand in your life? And, and again, we use the cheesy illustration of if we, if we had a back room and we filled it floor to ceiling with $100 bills, and we said, okay, you can go in there and take as much as you want, but you only get one chance. So whatever you come out with, that's all you get. Now, how many of us would walk in and get, take one $100 bill? None of us would. We are not that foolish. What would we be doing? Stuffing our pockets. Right? We, we'd be taking our shirts and we'd just be filling this thing. Why? Because we only get one chance. Isn't it interesting, though, that the king of the universe has opened himself up wide, saying, ah, oh, help yourself. Take as much as you want. It's limitless. Not, not even just once. You can have lifelong, unlimited access and resource of the king of kings and lord of lords. And yet, we are satisfied by so little. It's like we just take a little pinch of Jesus and we're just like, oh, I'm good, thanks. I go to church on Sundays, I'm fine. When this bottomless resource is available to us. So it's unlimited. So go crazy, go berserko. Just go nuts after Jesus. And you recognize that you can spend every single day for the rest of your life pursuing Jesus 
and still never even get past the tippity top of the iceberg of all that there is. That's an exciting thought. Uh, Paul, <coughs> was the, the last study we looked at was verse 19. He says, not only do I want you to know your calling, and not only the fact of your inheritance, but he says, I want you to know this overwhelming power that's working. Now look at verse 19. He says, he wants you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now we're going to run through this quickly here, uh, but when we were getting into the passage, we were talking about the fact that Paul is trying to describe the overwhelming power of God, and in so doing, he uses four different Greek words for the word power. It's really fascinating. Uh, one has this idea of sovereignty and dominion and authority and power in the sense of like a kingly rule. One of them has the idea of like resource and ability, that God has the strength to do something. And another one of the, word, the words power in that passage is the idea he's taking his strength and his ability and he's leveraging it and he's actually working that out. He's, he's taking the strength and he's demonstrating that strength. So it's like the visible expression of his overwhelming ability and power. And then the other one is this uh, word, it's the word energy. It's this idea of energizing or it's the flow. It's this idea that he's taking his overwhelming power and he's flowing that into your world and, it, and he's causing a work. He's causing something to be effectual. So if you think about what Paul's saying here, it's like, oh, I, I want you to gain an understanding of the overwhelming power of God. So what does that look like, Paul? He goes, I can't describe it. It's, it's huge. I mean, it, it is so indescribable. It, I, I, I honestly, I, I cannot do it justice. In fact, you could take, well, in fact, let me give you this quote. I love this. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He says, if you took all the dictionaries of the world, if you exhaust all the vocabularies, and when you've added them all together, you have still not begun to describe the greatness of God's power. And so here's Paul saying, I'm going into the Greek language, and I'm using every word I can find to talk about this overwhelming reality of the power of God and what, what God is doing in our world today. But even that comes up short. Because God's power is indescribable. And the point I was trying to make last time was, if the power of God is indescribable, how much more the God behind the power? It's a neat thought, isn't it? Do you recognize that God's power is overwhelming? Not, not just because Paul said it, but as you walk through all the scripture, there, there is this undercurrent of God's power is rich. God's power is amazing. It is effectual. It, I mean, this thing is huge. I mean, you thought Adam's muscles were powerful. I mean, just think about how God is. All right, I thought that was funny. Uh, listen to these verses from Psalms. Just, just listen to the Psalms of how the Psalms declare the power of God. Psalm 62, 11. God has spoken once, twice I've heard this, that, that power belongs to God. Psalm 65, 6. He established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. Psalm 68, 34 through 35. Says, ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. And his strength is in the clouds. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Psalm 106 verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. Psalm 147.5. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. 
you even just get this tone throughout Scripture that God doesn't just have a little power. He is all-powerful. I mean, the one who can literally speak nothing from nothing and bring something into creation and existence. I mean, what, how do you describe all that? Powerful. Now, if you, if you come to our passage then, it's interesting. You get to the end of verse 19, and it seems to me, and again, some scholars disagree, and they think the prayer goes all the way down to the end of the chapter, but it seems like what is happening in the passage is that Paul is praying this incredible prayer, verses 15 down to verse 19, and he ends by talking about, wow, God, you've got to get it, you've got to understand. You've got to just somehow grab a hold of the overwhelming power of God. And then in verse 20, he jumps in, and it seems like he's shifting his focus. Now, he's still talking about the power. But he, what, is he, what he's doing is he's shifting his focus, and he's giving an illustration of the overwhelming power of God. Now, it's interesting. You could say, well, is the illustration a part of the prayer? Maybe. But it seems probably more likely. It's like Paul is in the middle of praying, and he's just saying, oh, I, I want you to grab a hold of the overwhelming power of God. And then it's like Paul just goes, oh, this is so exciting. Let me just, let me talk about the power of God to you. And it's like he just stops praying, he just starts preaching. And for some of us, we don't ever know the difference, right? But, but it's, just, it's just like he's, he's in the middle of his prayer, and then it's like you kind of open your eyes and you squint, and you're like, is he done praying or is he talking? Yes, right? He's, just, he's still in the flow of the prayer, but it's just like we're going to have a teaching session. Our, you didn't say amen. Well, I know, but I'm just going to teach anyway. Is that okay? You know? And Paul just starts trucking forward. Now, what I'd like to do is I, I want to give you a, an overview, if you will, of what Paul is heading into. So, again, we're going to be looking at each of this in far more detail over the upcoming weeks and probably months and likely years. But as, as we walk through all this, I want, I want you to see it from a big picture. So, again, verse 19, Paul is saying, hey, you've got you've to understand the power of God. The power of God is indescribable. I mean, the power of God is immense. I mean, the power of God is just over the top. I mean, how do you describe the power of God? It truly is indescribable. That God has ultimate power and authority and sovereignty and dominion, that kind of kingly power. That God has unlimited resource and ability. He just has the strength to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. He's taking that strength and flowing that out into your world, and he's causing this demonstration of the power of God in your world. Now, you look at Paul, and you say, Paul, okay, that makes sense to me. God is all-powerful. Woo, that's awesome. But what does that look like practically? Could you give me an example? And Paul doesn't just give you one example. He actually gives you four. And the reason I think the whole passage shifts at verse 20 is because verse 20 down to verse 23 is only one example of the power of God. So let me walk you through these four examples, just kind of a big overview. In Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 20 down to verse 23, we have the first example of this overwhelming power of God. And the example is Jesus. Paul says, oh, here's this overwhelming power of God. And the power of God is just, it is indescribable. How, how, do, you, how do you describe, the bird's okay, don't worry about it, we're fine. I know you guys are concerned that the bird hit the window, we're fine. It's still alive. The power of God is with the bird. Everyone good? Okay. <clears throat> so Paul says, here's this overwhelming, indescribable power of God. Well, what does that look like practically? He says, oh, let me give you an example. Jesus. You recognize that Jesus died on the cross. 
Like, pl- please nod your heads. <laughs> Everyone's good? Hopefully that was basic, right? Jesus died. For whatever reason in the church, we have dumbed down the idea of the fact that Jesus died. It's like, yeah, he died. Yeah, he died. He rose again. Woo, praise the Lord. You recognize he was dead. Not like dead, but like dead, dead. Like food for worms, pushing up daisies, dead. <laughs> like he was dead. Does that make sense? I mean, he's dead, dead. Like go down to the morgue, pull out the body, dead. He died. Paul says, do you know what the power of God looks like? He goes, let me give you an example. Jesus. Here is Jesus, physically dead. And what did the Father do? The Father, in his overwhelming power, took his mighty hand and reached it into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked a physically dead Jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life. Woo! Please stay seated and contain your excitement. That's awesome, isn't it? So, hey, what does the power of God look like? The power of God in the life of Jesus, here's a physically dead Jesus, and the Father, in his overwhelming power, that's indescribable, reaches into the physical deadness of Jesus and brings a physically dead Jesus into physical life. And if that wasn't good enough, the passage goes on and says, not only did he bring him into life, but then he took the physically alive Jesus and elevated him and sat him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and mights and dominions and every name that was named, not only in this age, but also in that which was to come. And he put all things underneath his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. That's amazing! Isn't it? So what does the power of God look like? Oh, the power of God... The Father, and again, we'll, we'll walk through this in more in depth in the future weeks. But the Father really reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked the physical Jesus into physical life and then brought him in and elevated him at the right hand of the Father and placed all things beneath his feet. Paul says, that's the power of God. Yeah, that's a demonstration of the power of God. That's one example of the power of God. He says, oh, let me give you another example, which is chapter 2. Verse 1 through 10. The second example that Paul gives of the overwhelming power of God is you. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) You are an example of the overwhelming power of God. Paul says in chapter 2, you were dead. Not physically, spiritually. And of course you could walk through all that in verses 1 1 through 3. That you, that you were dead. Not just dead, but you were like dead, dead. Spiritually. I mean, you were pushing up daisies, food for worms, dead. Morgue-style dead, spiritually. And what did the overwhelming power of God do in your life? Think about this. Just as God reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked a physically dead Jesus into physical life, so he reached his hand into your spiritual deadness and brought you from spiritual death and brought you into spiritual life. Please contain your excitement. Stay seated. That's good news, isn't it? And we should be standing up, hooping and hollering, running the aisles with white hankies. Woo, this is exciting stuff, right? Why? Because this is our means of salvation. That the power of God reached into my deadness and brought me into life. But if that wasn't good enough, which that would have been sufficient, but if that wasn't good enough, just as he took a physically alive Jesus and brought him into the heavenly realms and set him at the right hand of the Father, Guess what he did with me? He took my spiritual aliveness and elevated me and sat me right down, smack in the middle of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. 
which is verses 4 down through uh, verse 6. So you're going to recognize that what, what the Father was doing in the physical life of Jesus, he's now doing in my spiritual life. And my life becomes a, a demonstration of the power of God to my world. That when someone looks at your life, they shouldn't go, whoa, wow, well done. They should be going, whoa, the power of God is being demonstrated. Why? Because you, you have spiritual life. And you are now seated in heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. And your position is now in Christ. Good news. So Paul says, hey, you want an example of what this power of God looks like? Look at Jesus. Hey, you, you, want, you want another example of what the power of God looks like? Look at what God's done in your spiritual life. Paul says, you want another example of the power of God? This is verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, down to verse 22. He says, another example of the overwhelming power of God is what God did in the church. Uh, in verses 11 down to verse 22, it's interesting. He starts talking about the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. Did you know that during the time of Christ, the Jews, it's not like they just didn't like the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. In fact, I thought this was interesting. The thought process of the early Jews uh, during the time of Jesus of what or, or why God created the Gentiles. See, the mindset of the Jew was the only reason why God created the Gentiles. You know who Gentiles are, right? You. <laughs> you know? The reason why God created the Gentiles was because the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Bless the Lord. Well, that's intense. <laughs> you imagine walking up to somebody. <gasps> oh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. What is it? You're going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. <laughs> that's not how you make a friend. I mean, it's the, I mean, this is, and there was such a animosity. There was such a hatred between the two groups. So think about what Paul is saying. He says, you know what? Do you know what God did? The overwhelming power of God, he literally took that dividing wall that separated the Jew and the Gentile, and he tore that thing down. And now the two groups, verse 14, those two groups have now been made one because Jesus is our peace, and he's bringing reconciliation. Do you know how crazy that is? That is impossible. I know. That's not supposed to happen. I know. In fact, it's, it's kind of ironic because that was God's plan all along. If you look back at the promise to Abraham, he tells Abraham, hey, I'm, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to chosen you, and I'm going to just, the whole world's going to see what I'm doing in your life, and they're going to want in on it. And you're going to be a blessing to the nations. But the Jews took that and said, oh, God has chosen us. He's rejected everybody else, so we're special. And they missed their whole calling, which was that they were to be a blessing to the nations, that they were supposed to, like the whole Rahab or Ruth thing, that when, when the Gentiles look at what God was doing with the Israelites, the Gentiles were supposed to say, can I have you in on that? Could, whatever it is that you guys have, I need. And they were supposed to say, yeah, come on in. There's room. So what happened to Rahab, the prostitute, the Gentile prostitute. So what happened to Ruth, the Moabitess. But for whatever reason, by the time it got to the time of Jesus, it was just eh, built. Just pagan dogs. And we're our little group over here. How are you going to bring reconciliation to that? I mean, how on earth are you going to restore two people who utterly hate each other? The power of God demonstrated. 
And Paul says, do you recognize that in Christ, what Christ was doing is he took these two hostile groups and he broke down the wall and he's brought them together. And now the two groups have become one. Isn't it an amazing thought that when we get to heaven, there are not going to be Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? There are going to be Christians. Which tells you there's probably not going to be Baptist Christians and Lutheran Christians and Presbyterian Christians and Mennonite Christians and Methodist Christians and Charismatic Christians and non-denominational Christians and not-so-sure Christians and there's not going to be division groups. And I, know, and I know some of our jokes in the church played off that way, like, you know, the Baptists get their corner, and the Lutherans get their corner, and the Presbyterians get their corner, and the Methodists get their corner, you know, and the Charismatic gets, gets their corner. And I don't know how many corners are in heaven, but apparently there's a lot of corners, right? Why? So we can have our little holy huddles. That's not going to be heaven. What's heaven? Unity. It's oneness. It's going to be relational. And we're not going to have Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity. We're just going to be, oh, Christian. That's what Paul's saying. And all the hostility has been removed. Now there is peace. Why? Because he is our peace. Well, that's impossible. I know. It's a demonstration of the power of God. Which tells you something about when our churches bicker and fight and split. Because what it's declaring is that there is no peace. And that God isn't powerful and Interesting side note. So, again, Paul's talking about the overwhelming power of God. And he says, hey, I, I got some examples for you. Jesus. L- look at what the Father did in the life of Jesus. Physical deadness, physical life, elevated to the heavenly realms. Hey, you are a demonstration of the power of God. Spiritual death, spiritual life, elevated to the heavenly realms. Hey, the church is a demonstration of the power of God. That he took these two hostile groups and he brought them together, made them one, and now there is peace where there was no peace. And then he gives a fourth example, which is chapter 3, verses 1 <clears throat> down to verse 13. And Paul says, oh, let me give you another example of the overwhelming power of God. Paul says, it's me. Uh, if, if you look at verse 7, Paul says, uh, this is chapter 3, verse 7, of this I was made a minister according to the great gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And he says, to me, which was the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the incomprehensible riches of Christ. He says, do you know what God's done in my life? He goes, the power of God has changed me. Yeah, my life becomes a demonstration. Why? Paul says, because I was a Jew of Jews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was persecuting the church. And do you know what God did in my life? He kicked me off my horse, saw a bright light, changed my life. And not only am I now declaring the richness of Jesus Christ, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Yeah, I was one of those guys looking at the Jews saying, burn, baby, burn. Yeah, fuel for the fires of the hell things. What has God done in my life? He's changed me. And now I get the privilege of declaring the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, that they can be fellow heirs with the Jews, that they can be brought in and made one. Paul says, you asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, uh-uh-uh, that's impossible. He says, but the overwhelming power of God has worked in my life, and he's changed my life to the point where I am not that same person. I love how Paul concludes this. Uh, at the very end of chapter 3, which is verses 14 down to verse 21, Paul gets into a second prayer. 
And again, it's interesting that he brings up this idea of power. So if you stand back a little bit, it's really fascinating to me that Paul, in chapter 1, begins his first prayer, and he concludes the prayer by saying, power! You've got to understand the power of God. And then he begins to walk through the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3, talking about, hey, let me give an example. Power, power, power. And then he gets to the end of chapter 3, and he says, oh, let me again remind you about this whole power of God thing. So it almost seems like there's these bookends, which is his two prayers, surrounding this demonstration of power thing. And again, if you understand the whole flow of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 is all about your position. He's, he's hammering in your mind your position in Christ. And your position in Christ, you recognize, is only available because of the overwhelming power of God. So there's this undercurrent that weaves itself through the first three chapters, which is, hey, would you grab a hold of the power of God? Hey, would you just allow your life to be a demonstration of the power of God? Hey, would you allow the church to be a demonstration of the power of God? Hey, will you just allow God's power to flow through you? Now, listen to how he concludes this. In his second prayer, which is chapter 3, verse 14, onward, uh, and we don't have time to get into the whole thing, but he's talking about this incredible reality of, hey, would you experience the fullness of, fullness of God? But look at verse 20. He concludes the prayer by saying, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or imagine, according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So in chapter 1, he says, hey, I want you to know and understand this overwhelming power of God. Let me give you four examples. Jesus, you, the church, and me. And he says at the very end of this whole thing, let me remind you, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could ask or imagine, to him be glory. Do you recognize that what your life is supposed to be is a demonstration of the power of God to this world? Yeah, but I don't know if you know my problems. I, I don't know if you know my situation. I, I don't know if you know my family. I, I don't know if you know my finances. I, I don't know if you know what I'm dealing with. And I don't. I don't know your issues. Thank you for not letting me know your issues. But can I tell you, my God's still bigger. Because our God is all-powerful. Yeah, but I, 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 yeah, I know, I know, he has power. But I don't know if he can handle this issue. What are you talking about? The power of God is indescribable. And if God, in his overwhelming power, can raise Jesus from the dead and raise us spiritually from the dead and bring two hostile groups together who would, never would have come together on their own. And hey, if he could take a man called Paul and really change his life to such a degree, there's nothing in your life that he can't affect and change and transform. Well, I've got family problems. He's in that business. Well, I've got financial issues. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, yeah, I've got ministry issues. Yeah, he can handle that. Well, I, I, I've been hurt in the past. That's fine. He can handle that too. Well, you don't understand the temptations and the struggles that I have. That doesn't matter. They're still but a drop in the bucket. Isn't it interesting that when we, when we reason through the power of God, we actually have more confidence in the power of our enemy than we do in the power of our God. That, that in the middle of a situation, or in the middle of a trial, or in the middle of some, some struggle, it's like we turn to God, and the way we talk to God, it's like, I don't know if you can handle this. God, I got this temptation. I'm about to give in. Can you do anything about it? Lord, I've got finance problems. 
don't know if you recognize that yet, but we have finance problems. Hello? You want to do something yet? And isn't it interesting just the way we talk to God about our problems? It actually presumes that our problems have more power than our God. We don't know. We don't truly understand the power of our God. Because I'm convinced if we knew the power of our God, we would not be coming to God saying, God, I don't know if you can handle this one, but could you, could you potentially, could you help here? What do, rather than doing all that, wouldn't we go to God and say, God, we, we trust you, we love you. In fact, instead of talking to you about our problems, why don't I go to my problems and tell my problems how big you are? Because they're just a drop in the bucket. I don't know what it is that you're going through, but would you allow whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever it is that you're struggling through, whatever temptations I'm bombarding you, whatever financial things or family things or health things or whatever it may be in your life, would you let him use that to become a demonstration of his power to this world? That doesn't mean he solves the issue immediately. That doesn't mean he, he removes consequences. That doesn't mean it suddenly becomes easier and you, you know, Skittles fall from the sky and bunny rabbits and sunflowers pop all over the place. That may happen, but you, you may still have health problems. And you may still have a crazy family member. And your finances may still look the same as it always has. But wouldn't it be interesting if God was smack dab in the middle of all that, and somehow in the middle of the chaos, or in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the circumstance, in the middle of the problem, in the middle of all the, whatever it is that is surrounding and pressing itself upon you, there's just this, there's a rest, there's a peace, there's a joy, there's a calm, and you begin to reflect him. See, wouldn't it be amazing to actually have an abundance of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in every circumstance? I think we'd have to call those people Christians, wouldn't we? And again, it's not that there isn't hurt. It doesn't mean there's not pain. It doesn't mean there's not confusion at times. It doesn't mean there's not difficulty. It doesn't mean there's not trials and temptations. But see, what, what if you begin to recognize that the power of God that is working in your life is able, according to Paul, to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you can ask or think? And by the way, we don't have time to get into this, but that phrase, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond, is not like, well, he can go a little bit beyond. This is like, it is... In the Greek, it is so strong. It's very emphatic. It's like he can go beyond, not just beyond, but beyond, beyond, not just beyond, but beyond, 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 beyond. Are you getting this? Beyond all that you could ask or imagine. Beyond. Well done. That, that's actually the emphasis in the passage. And the idea is, what's your best case scenario for, for whatever it is that you're dealing with? You realize that he can go far beyond that. So would you trust him? Now again, we're not talking about a microwavable thing where it's like, all right, I'm going to turn on Jesus and suddenly he fixes my problems. That's not what we're talking about. But you recognize that he, he and his overwhelming power can handle every single issue in my life. That there's no, nothing in my life is taken by surprise. Hey, there is, there is nothing that's going to, he's going to sit there and go, oh, no. Oh, oh, no. What are we going to do? I just... You're in trouble. Good luck. See, he wants to walk through with you through everything. And yeah, it may take some time. That's okay. He's patient. 
seems like more often than not, he doesn't, he doesn't just change things immediately. Why? Because he wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants to sanctify our hearts. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to get to know him. How are we going to do that if, it, if, it, if we have instantaneous responses all the time? See, it's in the middle of the difficulty when I'm having to learn my dependency upon him. And when I open my bank account afresh and go, oh, thank you, Jesus. Somehow you're going to have to provide beans and rice for today. And it's that, it's that daily provision of trust. It's that daily dependence. It's that, I think Jesus called it vine and branch stuff. Do you, know what, do you know what a branch does with a vine? It abides. Which has this idea of it rests. It sinks down into the vine. My favorite definition is it refuses to depart. See, it clings to the vine. Why? Because the vine is its life source. Would you do that with Jesus? And whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever, whatever it is that you may be facing, could you just, would you recognize that he is all-powerful? That he can handle your situation and that even if it doesn't seem like the resolution is coming as quick as you want it, that you can still trust him because he is walking through the difficulty with you. He's walking through the family stuff with you. He's walking through the finances with you. Hey, he, he wants to be triumphant in the middle of your temptation. So would you begin to let him be victorious in whatever it is that you're facing? That, hey, if you have to face consequences, so be it. But he's smack dab in the middle of your consequences. So trust him. See, this is good news. Tell your faces, this is good news. We need to know the power of our God. Paul says, I, I want you to understand this. Why? Because I think the moment we begin to understand it, it changes, it changes how we live. It changes our focus. Temptation shows up. I don't have to be pushed around by temptation. I actually can laugh at it. Why? Because it, it builds me stronger as long as I keep throwing myself upon Jesus. And hey, finance stuff happens, and it's just like, all right, God's faithful. And it actually builds my spiritual muscle. And family craziness happens, and it's like, well, Lord, I, you're going to have to get a hold of him. I trust you. See, see, would you let him grow you up in all this? Would you let him be sufficient? Would you let his power somehow demonstrate itself through your life so that when the world looks at your life, they don't see you, they see him and his overwork, overwhelming working power in and through your life. That's what turned the early world upside down. We need that today. Pray with me, Lord. Lord, I don't know what it is that everyone else is going through, but my guess is we all have hurt and pain and struggles and temptations and people and finances that need a movement of you in the middle of it. And Lord, I, I recognize that this isn't a hocus-pocus kind of thing. This isn't a bring you into the middle of it and it just changes everything. It's not that I get an instantaneous response. I, Lord, I get that. But could you somehow give me a fresh vision of your overwhelming power? Would, would you somehow acquaint me? Give me an understanding. Pull back the curtain and give me just an Give me the wisdom of your power so that I can somehow ascertain and understand and grab a hold of the fact that, that my problems are not too big for you. In fact, they're just these little winky-dink kind of things. They're just a drop in the bucket. That you're not intimidated by the stuff that's going on in my life. 
And Lord, what would it look like if, if in the middle of my circumstance and my situation and my temptation and my struggles and problems, what if I recognized that you were smack dab in the middle of that and you didn't just leave me by myself to deal with it, but that you were moving and working for your good pleasure, all of this according to your will, that I could actually trust. And, and Lord, I recognize that I've got responsibilities and I've got, I, I get that, Jesus, I, I get it. But Lord, I need a fresh vision of how big you are. And it seems like Paul in Ephesians is trying to say, hey, would you, would you recognize that God is all-powerful? That, hey, if he can raise Jesus from the dead and, and raise us spiritually, and hey, if he can bring restoration in the church, and, and wow, if he can change my life, oh, there's nothing he can't do. Because he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond, 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 beyond all that we could ask or imagine. Lord, we need you in the middle of every circumstance, every situation, and every problem. And Lord, we don't want you just in the bad stuff. Lord, we want you in the good stuff. Lord, could you somehow consume our lives afresh? Would you somehow so press yourself upon us? Lord, we want to respond to you and allow our lives to be a demonstration of your overwhelming working and power. Lord, we want our lives that when people look at us, they they just cannot explain our lives outside of you. That somehow in the middle of the pressures, there's peace. And in the middle of the chaos, there's calm. In the middle of the trials, there's just, there's a focus of you that just brings a smile to say, just watch what God's going to do. That we don't have to be pushed around by fear or sin or temptation. That that we can actually be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, what would it look like if we actually knew the power of our God? Well, what would it look like if we actually lived according to the power of our God? Well, what, what would it look like if, if the trials and the temptations of our life, we had a s- steadfast gaze, the fact that you are powerful? Lord, I'm convinced it would change how we think and how we live and how we talk. And Lord, this world needs to see you. So Lord, I'm not asking you to remove all our problems. Lord, I'm asking you to be involved in the middle of all of our problems. And somehow in the midst of all that, would you, would you grow us? Would you build our spiritual muscle? Would you sanctify us? Would you press us ever more unto you? Would you make us more dependent? Would you allow us to realize that we need to abide like a branch to a vine? Lord, we need you. And Lord, thank you that nothing can push, push you around that you have overwhelming ability, you can handle every circumstance, that you are all-powerful, nothing takes you by surprise, and we have you living inside of us. So Lord, change our lives, change our minds, and change our world. Lord, we love you, just thank you for what you're doing. We just give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.